Hey, church, it's good to be with you in this online worship service. We were, we were just chatting as a team about, about some of the folks in our church that are, are dealing with uh, really scary illness stuff. Uh, there are other things happening other than COVID, and, and some of them are hitting you right now. And uh, we just want you to know we're thinking about you. We're praying for you. Uh, December is a most wonderful time of the year, and it's also a really hard time of the year. So uh, if you're not feeling great, uh, please, please, please continue to let the church know so we can pray for you, so we can be with you. Uh, we're going to sing a song that's really joyful. Uh, so I hope that we can turn some mourning into dancing here, uh, even through the internet. Uh, you guys ready to sing? Here we go. Let's go. King of glory, there is a God. 
Let's sing. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful in nations rise. Joy the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim. 
Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you're watching this. Welcome to our online service at ABF. We're so glad you're with us this weekend. I have just a couple of things that you should be aware of. First of all, we want to continue to pray for you, and that would be through two ways. Either we'll see you at church because you're so inspired to come and see us this weekend, or most likely, if you're watching this, you're going to text us at 97000. Now, the other thing is, if I can convince you, come on out Sunday, uh, December 13th, for at nine o'clock, we have our marriage essentials class, and I think you'd love to be here. If you haven't been here on our campus in a while, check it out. It's socially distanced. There's plenty of airflow, and we'd love to see you on Sunday morning. Then our Canal Valley meal program is the next day, December 14th, and so by the time you're listening to this, we may still need the most important item. Apparently, we got everything except for the Brussels sprouts. Come on, folks, just cook me some Brussels sprouts and we'll be done with that. And we're gonna have a great uh, meal program on that Monday. Then look for this in your email. We have a Christmas video, an outreach video that we're gonna be sending to you so you can post on various social media platforms, your Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. It's gonna be an awesome way to connect people in your sphere of influence with the outreach message of Christmas. And then of course, what is Christmas without our Christmas Eve services? And so those services are Christmas Eve, December 24th, at four o'clock and six o'clock. There'll be candle lighting. There will be all the things you've been used to experiencing. And we have a special treat. We have hot cocoa, et cetera. So bring the entire family, bundle up. We got seven new heaters outside. It'll be a wonderful evening together on December 24th. And then we wanna to continue to thank you for your giving. It's been unbelievable how much uh, God has blessed this church in the past several weeks. And that deficit's come way down, uh, down to $10,000. You've done an awesome job. Continue that. We're so grateful for your generosity during this Christmas season. Well, I hope as you continue to watch this video today that you'll be inspired as we look at God's word with Pastor Scott again. Well, thanks, Pastor John, and uh, so good to be with you again this week. And I uh, just wanted to say, just as I'm starting off here, just what a privilege it is. I consider each week diving into God's Word with you. And I'll have to admit, though, it's a pretty significant uh, weight that I carry with this every week, knowing that I'm going to be accountable for how I taught God's Word to you. Sometimes that uh, keeps me up at night if I'm honest about it. Really, what's presented on this stage matters because realizing it has the potential to influence and impact what each of us believes. And really, when you weigh that out, that realizing that it not only has the potential to impact what you believe, realizing that what we believe influences where we spend eternity. Our eternal destination is determined by our belief. And so the weight of what we do here is significant. When we open God's word, it matters. I want to invite you to turn with me. We're in chapter eight of the book of John as we're working just verse by verse as best as we can through this. And I want to make sure, especially when I'm teaching God's word, that I'm crystal clear whenever I teach about saving faith. Because scripture teaches that not all faith saves. 
Let me explain that a little bit. Probably one of the most sobering passages, in my opinion, in all of Scripture is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, in, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's most concerning to me in that passage is the word many. In other words, many will expect that they're going to be headed towards heaven and come before the judge and his verdict will be this. No, away from me, depart. I didn't know you, you worker of lawlessness. Pretty intense when you think about it. It makes you want to ask the question, how do you make sure that you don't fall in the category of the many? Really what I'd suggest and we'll see in our passage here today is that how you know for sure that you're headed to heaven is this. There's clear evidence of saving faith on display in your life. That's how one's to know. A playful example of this, I don't know if any of you cross paths with somebody that would consider themselves a vegan. Now, how do you know that they're a vegan? Do you guys know any vegans? How do you know they're a vegan? Because they tell you they're a vegan. They tell you a vegan because they can't help it. It's influenced so much of their life. It's changed them dramatically, literally, from the inside out. It's changed their patterns of, of diet. It's changed the, uh, they know all the health and reasons behind it. They have a light green hue to their skin. I'm kidding about that part. But really, the way you know is because of the transformation that you've seen in their life. You think about that in a more serious note, what it looks like in the life of a believer is also the same. There's evidence because there's transformation that happens. Let me pray just before we dive into this section of scripture. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the clarity that you offer in all of this. And even this is a, though this is a little bit more of a somber passage, I believe it's critical for us to understand and grasp what saving faith actually includes. You make it so clear in this and walk us through it because you love us and desire that, we, that, that none are lost, that none should perish. We ask now that we'd be able to hone in and concentrate on what you have for us in this text. We invite that in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So working through the book of John, this is the account from Jesus's best friend. He's talking through personal experience, interactions. He's giving this account now, starting in chapter eight, verse 31 of words that Jesus spoke. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Powerful verse. A lot of us have uh, even committed that to memory. The first thing I wanted to point out, the important part in the very cu first couple words here is the audience in which he's speaking to. It says, those who had believed in him. 
If you remember last week, our study in the last section, it described that after all of the debate back and forth, there were some that had believed in Jesus. So now we're getting a chance to hear him hone in and speak directly to that group that had believed in him. Although we're about to discover in today's text that their belief was far from saving faith. They had an intellectual assent to who he was, but we'll see in the text today that they weren't ready to yield their lives or give their allegiance to him. Really, if you think about it, that's a dangerous place to be where you recognize the truth about Jesus, but you're not really willing to do anything about it. Many still operate in that position still today. They understand who Jesus is. They've heard the Bible stories. They acknowledge even who he is, but it's never moved to transformation. It's never caused change. And they can stay in that state for extended periods of time, some even for a lifetime. Why would John describe these folks as believers? It's actually consistent in the book of John. He refers back in chapter two, verse 24, of believers that had seen all the miracles that Jesus did and they believed, we're told that. But then it also tells us something interesting back in that chapter. It tells us that Jesus didn't put his trust in them because he knew the heart of man. He recognized that it wasn't a belief that had taken root. A little bit later in our study in the book of John in chapter six, verse 66, it described all these disciples or followers of Jesus And after they were exposed to some difficult teaching that Jesus has, we're told that they stopped following. See, that's what he's trying to convey to us, that not all belief is saving faith. So let's put on our theologian hat just for a moment, because if you don't don't look closely, you might miss it. In verse 31, what does it say that Jesus tells or acknowledges will be a sign of being a disciple. He says to them, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So he's explaining to them something, an explanation of what should be expected of a true disciple of his. This is not a condition for being saved, but it's evidence that someone is saved. So it's not one of those things, you know what, if you abide long enough, then God will accept you. No, that's not it. It's if you're accepted, then it's expected that you will abide in his word. And what does the word abide use? It's not typically a a word we use present day, but if you think about 2020, we've done a lot of abiding, right? A lot of times you associate abiding as what you do at your home. When you stay at home, For an extended period of time, you're considered, man, you're abiding in your home. And a lot of things happen, good things happen when you abide. You find shelter from the outside world. You recover from stress there. You find love there. You wake up there and you return to rest there. If you think about it, that's what God's word is intended to be. All of those things. I find as I get older, I love to abide at home as much as I can, but I also love to abide in God's word. Part of a true disciple is a growing love for God's word. And the outcome of that is knowledge. You see, it says there, knowledge of the truth. What truth is he referring to? 
spiritual truth needed for life and godliness. That's the truth that we find in God's word. It's always concerning to me when I talk to someone that's like, yeah, I don't really know much of God's word. Oh, so are you a new believer? No, I've been a Christian for, you know, 15, 20 years. You're like, wait a second. There's a problem there. There's no evidence of a desire or a hunger to be in God's word. I would suggest for each one of us, if we notice that our desire is waning for God's word, to ask for it. God, give me more of a passion to, to be in your word Amp me up as it relates to that. It leaves us otherwise vulnerable with shallow roots and really no evidence of God at work in our lives. The outcome we're told there of this knowledge is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from condemnation, freedom from judgment, freedom from spiritual ignorance, freedom from Satan, freedom from sin itself as we're about to see. Take a look at how the people that he's speaking to respond to him. Verse 33 says, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, I have to pause there just for a moment because that statement, never been enslaved to anyone. Really? They've been slaves to the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and currently they're under Roman rule. So I'm not sure how they're coming to that conclusion that they've never been slaves to anyone, but here's the reality is that spiritual blindness causes us to often rewrite our own history in order to condone sin. I'll say that again. Spiritual blindness causes us to rewrite our history in order to condone our sin. If you think about it, so many times somebody that's maybe been following Jesus is tempted to think back and think of like, oh man, I remember the, the good old days in college when we would just party all day and night. You're like, nah, those weren't, weren't really the good old days. You, you, weren't, you weren't happy during that season of life or, or the person thinks, oh man, before I was married and I used to just hang out with different girls all the time, that was awesome. No, you were lonely and miserable. The reality is sin and our attempt to condone it moves us to rewrite history. We don't know exactly if they're talking though here about physical or spiritual Trusting most likely in the physical, they're moving to the spiritual conversation. Maybe it's because they've put their trust in their Jewish lineage for salvation. Thinking that being born Jewish automatically made them spiritually free. The same is true for us so often thinking that, oh, I grew up in a Christian home. I, I went to Awana. I, I did all of these things. I've been going to church. But truth is, there's no real love of God's word. There's no passion there. He, Jesus continues as he responds to them in verse 34, trying to confront this tragic misunderstanding. He says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen from my with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. 
We'll stop there for a second. Jesus is trying to help them understand that regardless of their heritage or their background or their descent, he's like, sin is sin. Sin is still uh, leaving you in the position of a slave. Doesn't matter how uh, clean or the line of your, your, your ancestry, that's not what rescues us. Still today, so often we wanna brush off our sin as if it's a few minor faults or rather uh, than the reality of it being a cruel taskmaster as we've seen here. Sin though, as it identifies, says here that it's a, a slave, that it leaves him a slave. He helps him understand. I think it's interesting what he says there in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. In other words, this position that you, that you have as a, as a Jew during this time period, that's temporary because you're still considered a slave. You can be removed from the house at any point. It's sonship that determines the longevity of you staying in this position of favor. So trying to help their minds wrap around the, the fact that there's no guarantee of continued blessing. Verse 36, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Notice the difference in son there, lowercase s versus uppercase s. The son now that he's talking about is himself. He's saying, I'm the one that can set you free from your sin. I'm the one that can drastically change your life. Here's the reality is that freedom from sin is an expectation for those who are in Christ. Somebody that's still living a life where they're in bondage, you're like, man, you're, you're not living what you've been invited to. I always love the scene from Braveheart. I don't know if you remember it with Mel Gibson where he's riding on the horse and he's trying to rally up the troops. And do you remember his phrase there? They can take away our lives, but they can't that's right, our freedom. I put Josh on the spot there. This is a, a statement that's actually true for us, that regardless of what happens, we've been set free from sin, and the expectation is for us to live in that freedom. If the sun set us free, there's no, it makes absolutely no sense to go back living in sin. That's another evidence of saving faith, is we're free from our sin. Because before that, it was, it was not a choice, it just was who we are. Now, we actually have a choice. When it says that we're set free, it doesn't mean that we're absent of sin, though. Let's be clear on that. Being set free, the door has been swung open, we're still left on a daily choice, whether or not we go in and out of that prison cell, whether or not we remain there or we come out. An expectation is that we walk out of the prison. We have now have the power to resist. Now, here's the confusing thing about sin because so often sin promises the exact opposite of what it does. It says, you know what? If you do this, you'll experience freedom, especially in our youth. It has all these promises of, man, you can do this. It'll be so awesome. You think about how many kids that's maybe started smoking in elementary school behind the, behind the building, and now they're the ones with the nicotine patch on their shoulder. You think about how many times there's the promise of, of freedom of sexually to participate with as many partners as possible. And now that person is in counseling and they're trying to piece back together their heart. 
That's how sin works. That's how it operates. He says, don't go into that slavery. You've been set free or expected to live in that freedom. We're free to rebel against that slavery. The end of the section there, Jesus acknowledges that they're offspring of Abraham, but they have rejected his words and now they seek to kill him. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So basically what's happening here is Jesus is pointing the vast discrepancy between their actions and Abraham's works. Abraham was noted for being a man of extraordinary faith. And so he's calling them out and saying, hey, your, your desire to murder, your, your disinterest in believing me, that's the exact opposite of Abraham. Instead, he says they're doing the works of their father, which we're about to see in verses that come. He's referring to Satan himself. Look at their response, though. Pretty intense. It says, we are not born of sexual immorality. Most theologians believe this was a, a jab unlike any other, basically believing it was an attack on Jesus's own mom, suggesting the controversy over surrounding Jesus's birth, uh, implying that his birth was illegitimate. This is going into territory. Even as a kid, you knew you don't bring up somebody's mom, but here they're, they're hitting below the, the waist. Verse 42, Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Whoo! Things just got intense. Remember, this is the same group that at the beginning we were told he's talking to this group of believers, right? Now he's being clear that they understand that their father, that he doesn't, that if he, they don't love him, then they don't love the father. That's an important thing for us to understand in this section. When you're looking for characteristics of a genuine faith, there needs to be a love for Jesus. That needs to be a part of it. I, I get concerned when I see disinterest and apathy amongst even people that claim to be Christians that are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but man, there's no sign or no clues of any kind of a, a passion or, or love for Jesus Christ. It's a, a little bit disheartening to me when I see the inconsistency there. What he says, and he digs in deep with this, he's, he's explaining that you can't love the Father without loving the Son. They're, they're interconnected. He explains that to them. 
It's like, why can't you understand these things? And he answers his own question because he doesn't not know why they can't understand it. He tells it. He says, you cannot bear to hear my word. Basically, it's this. They didn't want to hear the truth because if they embraced him as savior, they would also need to acknowledge him as Lord. There'd be a turning over the keys to him. There'd be a submission to him and they were not interested in that. People love their sin and their self-sufficiency. Why, not sugarcoating why, he tells them, your father is the devil. Wow, pretty impactful statement there. Not a slam, not intended to be that, but a dose of reality. You see, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that we have no idea about. There's a spiritual presence behind the scenes that so often we wanna ignore or push off, but Jesus goes, cuts straight to the core and says, there's a spiritual battle going on here and you're submitting to the leader of this world who is Satan. There's two characteristics he points out in Satan. Do you see them? He's a liar and a murderer. Now, what have they become? They've become liars and murderers. You've heard the expression before, like father, like son. It's sad when you see a, char a characteristic passed down to the son or the, the daughter that's heartbreaking. You're like, oh man, I hope that cycle can be broken. I was playing uh, pickleball actually just a couple nights ago and on a, uh, one of the courts, there's this father-son combo. The son was only 12 or 13 years old and this kid was amazing. He was playing with all the adults and definitely holding his own. He could definitely compete in tournaments. So at one time I had a chance with the guy that I was playing with to play against them. And through the entire match, the dad would always, any mistake would be like, oh, what a stupid mistake. Oh, when he finally would make a good shot, which was quite often, he'd be like, oh, finally. And just ripping into his son. Oh, I so wanted to jump that net. But anyway, didn't. Instead, just tried to hit him with the ball as often as I could. But really, I was thinking about it. I was like, I wonder where that started. Where did that cycle begin? Was it with his father? Was it with his father's father? Was it a generational thing? So often we, instead of, without realizing it, we conduct ourselves and mirror our parent. That's what Jesus is explaining. Saying, you don't want to submit to me because you're currently, maybe even without realizing it, submitting to Satan himself. I love what he points though towards it. He's saying, hey, I don't know why you wouldn't believe me. When can you point to any sin in my life? Can you imagine making that statement before a crowd? He's like, go ahead, point to anything that I've done, any time that I've broken the law. Can you point to anything? And if not, why would you not believe me? Remember uh, a few weeks back, this, uh, Announcer on CNN, Don Lemon, had got himself in a little bit of trouble. Here's his quote. Jesus Christ, admittedly, was not perfect when he was here on this earth. I'm like, uh, actually, he was. That's why he was an adequate substitution for us on the cross. In fact, here, when he's describing, he said, go ahead, put me on the stand. You will find I am without blemish. Look at the Jews' response, though, when they hear this. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying you are 
are a Samaritan and have a demon? Whoa, that was like the ultimate slam back then. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have, have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I, do, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Again, a powerful interaction. This time, the, the Jews accusing him of having a demon, of being a Samaritan, as many slams as possible. He, of course, dispels this idea, but he also, at the same time, does some clarifying of what saving faith includes. Do you see it there in the text? Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. There's an expectation. One of the evidences of being a, a true disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, is doing his word. There's a popular statement or phrase that people often use when they're talking about somebody that's in a particular uh, religion. They'll often say, well, they're a, not a practicing Jew or they're not a practicing Muslim or they're not a practicing Buddhist or Catholic. That's a, often an expression, the meaning they say it, but there's no real evidence in their life of it actually happening. Think about that for a moment. What Jesus is dispelling is the myth that it's possible to be a non-practicing Christian. There's no such thing. He explains that if you keep his word. That's an expectation. If you're a follower, you will follow what he has to say. They ask him, what, what are you going to live forever? Are you greater than Abraham? Jesus is like, yeah, pretty much. Yes, I am. Let's, let's be clear on who Abraham was. Abraham was just a random pagan guy that God chose to reach out to and bestow blessing on for really no reason other than his own delight. Think about that. In reality, God promises though to make a great offspring out of his, uh, out of, uh, his ancestors, and, and God is faithful to that. It's awesome, and Abraham should be respected, but not at the same level as Jesus. They push Jesus a little bit further. Do you see it there in the text? They're like, so are you saying that you are there? You were, you're not even 50 years old. And I love Jesus' statement, the power that's in it. I told you in this study that every time he uses the I am statement, I'd make sure to point that out. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
Again, the same descriptor that God himself used with Moses in the wilderness when he's explaining to him at the burning bush, I am that I am. It's a powerful statement. It's a claim of deity. And what do we see as the response to that? It says that they take up rocks with intention to stone him to death there. We don't know exactly how Jesus gets out of that. I I think of this as a supernatural thing. It says, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I don't know how you leave the center of a crowd where you're the object of everyone's attention and just sneak off. But either way, in all of this, subtly, Jesus is explaining to these believers, these new believers, he's explaining to them what truly following him looks like. What saving faith, what evidences there are of saving faith. Evidence that you're, there's a, a love and a passion for God's word. That's intended to be part of our life. He also expects that there's a, there's a shunning and pushing away. There's a freedom from sin, no longer entangled in it. He points out also the idea that there's a love for Jesus. You can't claim to be a Christ follower without having a love and a passion for Jesus. It just doesn't work like that. And lastly, here in this section, making sure we're clear that that love is demonstrated with our actions. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, is what Jesus says. What I realize in scripture is that this tension of what actual saving faith looks like actually runs throughout. In fact, Jesus never seems to let us off the hook with that. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we're told to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Or a more intense one in Philippians 2, 12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, genuine saving faith includes the entire person, the intellect, the emotions, the, and the will, every single a- aspect is involved in it. It's not just a one-time event by a fireside chat that you say, yes, Jesus, I'll accept you. It might start there, but then there's evidence in your life that demonstrates that it's taken root. There's a love there. There's a passion for Jesus Christ. My hope going into this Christmas season is that we wouldn't miss this. That what is spoken here in this church is a clear, crystal clear explanation of what saving faith actually looks like. Let me close as we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this text and this passage. And sometimes there's sections of scripture that are a little bit more uh, jovial and a little bit more uh, playful. This one's pretty intense, but it's important that we slow down and think about intense things, especially when eternity is on the line, making sure that we're in the faith, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I pray that you do a work in each one of us where we do some self-reflection, even in response to this, asking some of those tough questions. Am I just riding a, a, a pretend faith of my childhood or, or do I actually have a legitimate honest relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there a love for his word? Is it, is it demonstrated in my actions? God, I pray that you do a work in each one of us because this matters. What we believe matters. We thank you for this time. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Well, this is week three of Advent season, and this candle that we'll be lighting here in a moment represents joy. We've had hope, we've had peace, and now we have joy. And it may be hard for some of us to have that kind of joy we've been thinking about because of the uncertainty of the season and 
COVID quarantines and all that we've experienced. And yet we have a time back in history where there was some uncertainty. In fact, there was downright fear. It came via the message to the shepherds from an angel who said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. And so that changed the whole complexion of the evening for those shepherds. And in fact, this announcement about the birth of Jesus continues to give us joy and encouragement today in our uncertain future. He is the Savior. He is the one who gives us the ultimate joy that's not dependent on circumstances. And so we rejoice as we light this third Advent candle of joy. And so let's celebrate a Christ-centered Christmas as we pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you sent your son Jesus to be born. And over 2,000 years ago, that brought joy to the hearts of shepherds. And so we thank you for being the source of our joy today. And in fact, Lord, we pray that we would radiate that joy and share it with all that we come in contact with as we celebrate you during this season. In Jesus' name, amen.